1: There are credible researchers exploring parapsychology and its implication for understanding the survival of consciousness after physical death. Our guest today is a pioneer who for more than four decades has relentlessly been exploring research in parapsychology, the survival of consciousness, and what has been termed the paranormal. Dr. Jeffrey Mishlov was diverted in his education from his original field of criminology by a profound dream. It was at that point he began to explore the field of parapsychology that was in the early 1970s before this field was even on the radar of most academicians. Today we'll be exploring some afterlife investigations such as near-death experiences, after-death communications, reincarnation, instrumental transcommunication, mediumship, and much more with our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. Jeffrey Mishlove is the only person who has been awarded a doctoral diploma in parapsychology by an accredited American university, namely, University of California at Berkeley. For the past 50 years, he's been a pioneer in the research of parapsychology and is the founder and host of several radio and TV program series called Thinking Aloud. And most recently, the new Thinking Aloud program series found on YouTube. Dr. Mishlov is a recipient of the prestigious Bigelow Institute Award of $500,000 for his essay on parapsychology entitled, Beyond the Brain, The Survival of Human Consciousness After Permanent Bodily Death. He's also the author of several books, including Roots of Consciousness, the classic encyclopedia of consciousness studies revised and expanded, and PK Man, A True Story of Mind Over Matter, Join us for the next hour as we explore serious research of the paranormal with our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. I'm speaking with Jeffrey from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jeffrey, welcome.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you, Justine.
1: Oh it's my pleasure as well. Our paths go way way back to those early 70s so I I've been following your work for a long time and here we are. I would love for you to share with us that dream that really moved your path in a totally different direction. So can you share with us what that dream was?
2: Well Justine if you had known me in 1972 I think you may have met me just a year or two after that I was a graduate student as you mentioned in criminology I was doing graduate uh, an internship at San Quentin prison doing group therapy with murderers and rapists and one day in March of 72 I had a very profound dream. It was so moving that when I awakened from the dream, I was crying tears of joy and singing one of the most sacred songs of the Jewish liturgy that's only sung on the high holidays. It never happened to me before or since that I'd wake up from a dream singing and crying like that, so I wrote home said, because the dream was about my great uncle Harry, and he came to me, and he, we had this very deep conversation. Uh, the The contents of it were important. I mean, we we differed from each other. He was fifty years older than me, and he had a very different attitude about men and women. And he disapproved of my attitude of, of that women should be thought of as equal to men. But the important thing is that it was a soul-to-soul connection. So I wrote home. I said, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. My mother called me as soon as she got the letter. She said, how did you know? Uncle Harry just died. And that um, affected me. in in such a way that uh, I didn't think I could continue in criminology anymore. I was very interested in studying human deviance, but I made a decision not to focus on the negative side of human deviance, but to focus on the positive side. So instead of studying crime and psychopathology, I began to pay attention to intuition, mysticism, psychic functioning, and creativity, and uh, that really turned my life around. I can look back now uh, and 50 years later and and say, you know, I made a change in direction in, in 1972, and I stuck with it for 50 years, and I owe it to a large degree, to Uncle Harry, who came to visit me at the time of his death.
1: Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for just bringing us into that dream that changed your life. And it just takes me to the idea, and this goes back to one of your early books, what is consciousness? And does it reside in the brain or is it a filter system? Uh, What can you say about your research and your understanding of consciousness?
2: Well of course conventionally in the field of uh, neurology it's almost an axiom that consciousness is produced by the brain however they've never been able to prove it and in fact in in my essay for the Bigelow Institute I dug up an old interview I had done with Francis Crick the Nobel laureate who was involved in the discovery of the double helix nature of DNA, which has got to be one of the greatest scientific discoveries of the 20th century. And he had a book out in in those days called The Astonishing Hypothesis. And I asked him about death. And he said to me that if you believe the conventional view, then when your brain dies, you're dead. There's nothing more. He said, but that's just a hypothesis. It could equally be the case that the religious point of view is correct, that consciousness exists after we die. He said, science hasn't yet answered that question. And Of course, there are people uh, ever since William James wrote about it uh, in the late 1890s, as I recall, when he gave his Gifford lectures on uh, survival, In England, he suggested that the brain doesn't create consciousness, it receives consciousness, kind of like a radio receiver, that consciousness is more fundamental than physical reality itself. You could say that physical reality is like an island that rests in the ocean of consciousness.
1: Oh, that's a wonderful visual view of it. Beautifully said. And it just reminds me, mentioned in your essay, the psychedelic experiments where they hooked up someone on psychedelics, and they expected a lot of brain activity. So can you you mention that?
2: Yeah. Yes, there have been quite a few studies now using a variety of psychedelics, primarily psilocybin, but others as well and people of course report incredibly profound experiences lots of visual imagery everything seems more meaningful to them so one would think that if consciousness is produced by the brain the neurons would be just buzzing but the opposite is the case it seems as if when the brain shuts down and quiets down which is what happens with this drug consciousness is no longer filtered out and consciousness comes through more intensely.
1: I just I love that. And I loved um, the idea that you mentioned and many others, and it's come up on New Dimensions many times. Um, uh, Max Planck's, uh, the famous physicist the Nobel Prize winning uh, Quantum physics. Uh, he researched that and came up with that idea. And he said, "I regard consciousness as fundamental," and this just changed everything, didn't it, Jeffrey? I mean, we what mostly in science there the fundamental is the material, and that's that's how it's regarded by much of science today. But we're turning that over now. where' we're we're doing something else, and where consciousness is the fundamental of of life. Uh, so this is really an exciting time that we're living in. So do, do you have anything to say about what is termed scientism?
2: Scientism is the belief that uh, the mechanistic, materialistic, Newtonian view, of the world, which works beautifully for uh, mechanics. It works beautifully for technology. uh, It's what uh, has created so much of our modern conveniences, but that that is the final description of all of nature. And because of scientism, after 40 years, I'm still the only person in the United States with a doctoral diploma that says parapsychology on it.
1: It's just wild because here you are, see, uh, such a pioneer, Jeffrey, and still, you know, universities are, are not awarding and not uh, really academicians are not acknowledging this other form, that's this um, consciousness, which is much bigger than the material universe. Um, And so, I want to go into some of the things. I want to talk about some of the um, documented experiences and the parapsychological events that you really talk about and really display so well in your essay. and But I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove, and he is the author of the essay, Beyond the Brain, The Survival of Human Consciousness After Permanent Bodily Death. And also, you can see his many, many interviews that he continues to do also, just like we do, is um, called New Thinking Allowed. Uh, that's his website, NewthinkingAloud.com, And Allowed is A-L-L-O-W-E-D, newthinkingaloud.com Or you can go to the YouTube channel and find it, Aloud. So check it out. Uh, I'm Justine Willis-Thoms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Jeffrey Mishlov, and he is the author of an incredible essay that got a huge award from the Bigelow Institute called Beyond the Brain, the Survival of Human Consciousness After Bodily Death. And let's talk about some of the things that you, Jeffrey, display and the interviews that you've done with all sorts of researchers. And let's talk, first of all, about near-death experiences. And um, what can you say? What, what comes to mind? What what one you might highlight for us in this conversation?
2: Well, I think the first thing people should know is that there are probably millions of people who have had the near-death experience at, at this point in time. People who have had close brushes with death and have returned, have come back, sometimes even pronounced dead. For example, people in a hospital who have had cardiac arrest while they're in the hospital and recover from cardiac arrest. And What we know from people who come back with these reports is that they experience a sense of profound love and unity and a sense of spiritual, I guess you'd have to call it awesomeness, a sense that what happened to them when they were supposedly dead was more real than this physical experience, much like the dream I told you about with my Uncle Harry uh, 50 years ago. So this, to me, is an example of what we could think of as the early stages of the afterlife. There's every reason to think that that's exactly what they're reporting.
1: I'm thinking um, many of us are familiar with Dr. Eben Alexander and his book, Uh, Proof of Heaven, and how he had an experience, and this beautiful young woman came to him, and do you recall who he found out who she was?
2: Yes, indeed, it was his biological sister. He he had been adopted, and after he uh, was with a new family. His, his parents had other children that they raised separately from him. And this sister had died. He never met her. Uh, but he had a profound experience with her in the out-of-body state. And only after he came back from that, he recovered from being in a coma for a week. Uh, and he f- discovered her picture. And he realized this is the same person. Technically, we call this a peak in Darien experience. Uh, (laughs) That's the word that researchers use, and it's based on a, a mountain. On the isthmus of Panama, when the first Spanish explorers climbed the mountain to look around at this new continent they had found, they saw the Pacific Ocean, which was an enormous surprise to them. So the idea is that when people have a a near-death experience or a deathbed vision, they may discover somebody there waiting to greet them on the other side, somebody they didn't realize was deceased. In Evan Alexander's case, someone he didn't even know existed, but he later discovered was his own sister.
1: Yes, I I love that. I love that story. And that reminds me of someone that both of us have known, uh, and that's uh, psychiatrist Elizabeth Targ beautiful, beautiful woman who, who left us much too early, right in the middle of her research. Uh, she was doing research on on the effects of prayer with AIDS patients. And Elizabeth is the daughter of Russell Targ, who's a physicist, parapsychologist and who really specializes uh, or he specialized in and continues to uh, in remote viewing. And he, they did uh, an experiment, uh, kind of a pre-arranged communication because she knew that she was passing. Uh, so do, do you recall that and the outcome of that?
2: Well, I I do know this. I, I didn't know it was pre-arranged. I do know that Russell was kind of a stubborn person, I, I a mean, brilliant physicist, a laser physicist, but he didn't accept uh, the afterlife. He didn't know about, uh, well, the various communications from Elizabeth started immediately after her death, and there were dozens of them. But I think Russell was resisting. He, and it's natural to resist. People find logical explanations. One day, Russell's writing partner at this era, Jane Catra, was applying for a job at Duke University. Completely across the country and the East Coast. And in one of the breaks, a staff member, a Duke, came up to her and said, uh, Jane, do you know a woman with long dark hair who died recently? And Jane said, I think I do. And the, the staff member said, Well, she's with me now and she's urging me to give you a message to give to her father because he doesn't believe in the afterlife, but this will convince him. You tell him that his daughter says that when she was two years old, he tried to force her to wear a red dress and she tore it off. She refused to wear it. And when Russell heard this story, he realized he was the only person alive who knew about it. His, his wife had already died who, who knew about it. So that convinced him that Elizabeth had survived her physical death and was still alive and on another plane of existence.
1: I can think of another person that we've both interviewed through the years. Uh, that's Dr. Willis Harmon. He was a scientist. He was on the uh, Board of Regents of the uh, University of California uh, schools. He had such an openness to uh, all of this, do, do you recall being with him and some of his ideas on the, on consciousness and what <laughs> survives?
2: Yes, and indeed. In fact, he sponsored a symposium on afterlife experiences. And I got to give him a lot of credit because uh, he was looking into things that even parapsychologists have shied away from, and that being in particular what we call instrumental transcommunication. There are today tens of thousands of people who are hobbyists, who use their computers, their radios. You can buy instruments online, uh, something called the spirit box, which randomly goes through radio signals. And who maintain that they are communicating with their deceased loved ones this this way. And parapsychologists have always been sort of skeptical, like it's you could be projecting, it could be what's known as paradoia, the uh, projection of patterns onto random sounds. But Willis wasn't satisfied with that. He dug into it very deeply, as did your colleague, Dan Drazen, who was a big, Uh, inspiration to me. In fact, I cited Dan Drazen's work extensively in the essay alongside of uh, Willis Harmon to say, we've got to take this instrumental transcommunication business seriously. There are examples of beautiful voice communications coming across that have been received by multiple individuals on different uh, mediums. So, I wrote about that. It was risky because it's such a controversial yes. area.
1: I just want to mention um you mentioned Dan Drayson, and he's done several documentary films on that. And you have a colleague, um Emmy Vadis, uh, who also had an extraordinary uh electronic communication. can Can you describe her her uh, experience?
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, Emmy is working with me now. I'm bringing her on to New Thinking Aloud as a guest host. And she's an occupational therapist who lives in St. Paul. Her her mother-in-law, a beautiful woman, died. Uh, They were very fond of each other. Emmy just loved this woman. And in fact, her body was laying in state in their home uh, before the cremation. And then they took the body to be cremated. At three in the morning, while Emmy's mother-in-law's body is at the crematorium, her stepfather, who was also close to the whole family, received a text message on his phone, supposedly coming from Emmy's phone. And the text message said, I'm glad it's over. Now, in the morning, he called Emmy and he said, I got this text message from you. What's this all about? And Emmy said, I didn't send you a text. In fact, her phone shows that she didn't. She has a complete record and I have the graphics showing that so both Emmy and her stepfather, who was quite skeptical up until that point, came to the conclusion that this was an example of instrumental transcommunication and from her he, mother-in-law.
1: He took a picture of his phone, too, didn't he? And yes. like a screenshot that said, yep. here's the message. And yep. it, it's like, oh, so what What do you make of that one, Jeffrey? Well, there's
2: a a whole series of uh, cases that have been researched by parapsychologists, starting with a distant cousin of mine, D. Scott Rogo, who back in the 1970s published a book called Phone Calls from the Dead. And and now uh, uh, another parapsychologist has picked up that work. So we have about 100 cases on record, in which people have had lengthy conversations at times with their deceased friends and relatives.
1: Well, I I want to tell you our Michael's, my late husband, and my experience of it. Uh, and some of our listeners have heard this story, but after his mother died, and we were were driving into the driveway. And we were in separate cars, and uh, she had just died, and Michael was having second thoughts about unplugging her. And it was just at that moment, Jeffrey, exact moment, that a sticker that had been on that car windshield for like over a year peels off the windshield and is laying on the the desk or on the front of the car and it says, Grateful Dead Backstage Pass. <laughs> so there you go. You know, these communications, who knows? I'm here with Dr. Jeffrey Mishlov, and he is the author of the essay that got the big award from the Bigelow Institute, Beyond the Brain, The Survival of Human Consciousness After Permanent Bodily Death. And also, he is the host and founder of New Thinking Aloud YouTube channel, uh, where you can really discover all of his wonderful um, interviews. And, and he spells that uh, aloud as A-L-L-O-W-E-D, New Thinking Aloud. If you want to go to his website or um, go to the YouTube channel, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Jeffrey Mishlov, and we're talking about parapsychological events. And there are different kinds of events. We talk about near-death experiences and afterlife communications. And um, I would love for you to say something about reincarnation and what you feel about that. I know that the University of Virginia has a department uh, called Department of Perceptual Studies. So what do you have to say about reincarnation and what you've discovered in your interviews and your contacts?
2: Well, there's a great deal, one could say. I've (laughs) done dozens of interviews, but the bottom line people should know is that at the University of Virginia in the School of Medicine, as you mentioned, they have a database of some 2,500 cases that they have investigated over the last 50 years. And these are mostly cases where young children, as soon as they can begin to talk, start telling their parents that they used to be another person who lived in another village, who had a different name, who had different parents, sometimes spoke a different language. And Of the 2,500 cases, roughly 1,700 of these cases have been what they call solved, which means that researchers have come onto the scene, have collected all the information that the children have provided, and were able to then identify who the previous person was. So, that's very strong evidence. It's much stronger than any single case. You could try and pick apart, you know a, a single case, but when you look at the numbers of cases, it doesn't mean that everybody automatically reincarnates, but it does suggest that that is one possibility for people when they enter into the afterlife experience.
1: Tell me, Jeffrey, are are these cases are they in general accepted in scientific communities?
2: Well. They're certainly accepted by the University of Virginia School of Medicine, where, in fact, uh, the the program was founded by Ian Stevenson, who at the time was the chair of the psychiatry department there. And they have published in mainstream medical journals uh, articles about their research, because one of the things that they have found is that the young children who remember past lives have a high proportion of lives that they remember in which there was a violent death. And another finding is that very often these children have psychological disorders, phobias, for example, that are associated with the violent death that they experienced in a previous life. So Stevenson is suggesting if we wanna understand psychopathologies of various types, looking at this reincarnation data suggests a whole dimension that can be very important when looking at the origins of these pathologies.
1: Are, are there different scientists who are following through with this, Jeffrey? Are they real or, or psychologists or psychiatrists? Are they following through and, and at least being open to the idea that the way that someone is responding, the pathology of someone's life, is maybe more than just this life?
2: Well, you know, it's so funny, Justine, because officially people in academia and in scientific establishments are very, very hesitant to admit that they have an interest in this. They are afraid of being laughed at. Nevertheless, The Parapsychological Association is formally affiliated with the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and even one of the most renowned skeptics, the late Carl Sagan, published in uh, one of his books, The Demon-Haunted Universe, as I recall, that we ought to take the evidence of reincarnation very seriously. So privately i think what you find is that well if you if just the population as a whole 70% of the american public has consistently accepted the data for life after death and Parapsychologists know this, every time we speak, people will come up and say, let me tell you about my experience, and then they'll add, but I have never told anyone else before. So it's it's this big secret that everybody thinks they have, but it's actually much more common than people in the so-called mainstream, the guardians of reality, uh, will ever acknowledge.
1: Well, is all of this part of that what they term the hard problem of science? Is, is this part of that hard problem of science that that materialist scientists uh, just sort of put aside and say, okay, well, we're not going to talk about this problem. Can you describe mm-hmm. that that problem and what is mm-hmm. being avoided?
2: The term was coined by the philosopher David Chalmers. Uh, He calls it the hard problem of consciousness. And the idea is that, uh, as we mentioned earlier, the scientists assume consciousness is produced by the brain and eventually we will figure out how that happens. But uh, philosophers have come on board and said, there's no way. If you consider the brain to be made out of inert dead matter, that you're going to get consciousness. That's why, as as you mentioned earlier, Max Planck said, no, you can't get underneath consciousness. Consciousness is the the fundamental layer of reality. And of course, he didn't mean individual consciousness. He he meant what we could think of as universal consciousness or what the philosopher Schopenhauer once described as the one mind that sees through the eyes of every living creature.
1: I know some of the people that you talk with and you mention in your essay hyperspace. Hmm. What is hyperspace and what are they referring to?
2: Hyperspace is more than three dimensions of physical space. Uh, It used to be called the fourth dimension. Then they said, oh, time is the fourth dimension. So now in string theory, you have 10, 11, 12 dimensions. Mathematicians have what they call Hilbert space, which is infinitely many dimensions of space. And they've been able to, in mathematics, map out the geometry of what happens when you go From let's say five or six dimensions up to seven? What are the transformations that take place? And so mathematicians generally feel that this three dimensional reality or four dimensional space time reality is embedded in a higher dimension of space. I earlier used the metaphor of uh, physical reality being like an ocean in the sea of consciousness. And you might think of that sea of consciousness as being in hyperspace. Because if the afterlife is a real place, and it certainly seems to me like it is, it has to be somewhere. And that place would be hyperspace.
1: Ah, I'm I'm reminded as you're talking about this of a very popular series of books in the 70s. And we were all very excited about it. It might've been what you'd call channeled, information and it was Jane Roberts. Her first book I think was called Seth Speaks. And then when you mentioned hyperspace, I was thinking of her Over Soul Seven, uh, which uh the seven realities. And it was the first time that we really got introduced to this idea that it's more than this three-dimensional reality, that it's it's much bigger. It could be And most likely is uh, much larger.
2: Yes, there's a a wonderful book also channeled back in the 1930s. The channeler was a, a British or Irish woman named Geraldine Cummins. And she was channeling information from a deceased psychical researcher, Frederick Myers, who was the author of the classic book, Human Personality and its Survival of Bodily Death. In that book, it's called The Road to Immortality. He describes the afterlife roughly about 30 years after he died. And he describes, as you say, seven different dimensions or layers of the afterlife, each penetrating each other and having various uh, different kinds of experiences, even a different sense of identity as you go from one dimension to the next in the afterlife.
1: I remember uh, years ago, Michael's son, and Michael, my late husband and partner, Michael Toms, he was having a lot of trouble with his son. And there was a psychic, I think it was Betty Bethards at that time, said uh, he did a session with Betty. And she said, well, of course, you're having trouble with Michael Jr. Because he was your father in another time and space and and somehow Jeffrey that just helped everything relax between them. Uh it like it gave a kind of understanding, gave a context that was beyond the psychological or whatever they were grappling with. Uh, so I- any comment on on that?
2: Well I think it's it's a beautiful story because If Michael could appreciate that his son was his father in in another lifetime, it's like you can let go of the ego role, like I'm the father, you're the son. (laughs) And and that seems to be what a lot of these near-death experiences and reincarnation experiences are all about, ultimately, is the evolution of each of our individual souls beyond ego attachment.
1: Exactly, exactly. I well, I'm also thinking about the um, idea of possession, okay that that somehow we and I don't mean it in the in the sense that it's a terrible thing like these terrible movies that show possession, but but that that people get possessed by by entities or, or con- with a consciousness that's not their own. Um, so I, I, what would you say about that and your experience in your interviews with people about that?
2: Well, Ian Stevenson began researching cases of possession alongside of cases of reincarnation. Some of the researchers think of possession as replacement reincarnation. And we have in the literature some well-researched cases, at least a dozen, that I can think of where a deceased individual will come and and replace, in effect, a living individual. Typically, the living person has an illness. Uh, In one of the most famous cases in India, the uh, woman was thought to have died. They were getting ready for the cremation when all of a sudden she sat up and began speaking a different language.
1: I, I want to hear more about that in just one moment because I don't want to cut you off, but I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. If you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website thinkingaloud.com or you can find it on the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with dr jeffrey Mishlov, and we're talking about replacement what reincarnation reincarnation Re-plac- and you were describing a, a specific case
2: mm-hmm. it's it's a well-known case where a a woman in india got sick uh, her name was uh um, singh she got sick and her family thought she had died They were getting ready to have a a cremation when all of a sudden she sat up and she looked around and speaking a different language, speaking Bengali instead of the the local language, which I think was Hindi. She uh, began addressing these people. Who are these people? She didn't know. And eventually they had to bring in interpreters to hear what this woman who said her name was Shiva, Shiva Tripati. In fact, she talked about how she came from a village about 60 miles away and how she had been murdered by her in-laws. And uh, so this, you know, became a, a source of local gossip. The uh, Singh family had to bring in interpreters anytime they wanted to speak with the person who was in the body of their daughter, who was a married woman with two children, and eventually the Tripati family from 60 miles away learned about this, and they came to visit. And Shiva, who was in the body of a Singh, Shiva Tripati, the spirit, recognized this family, came and gave them warm hugs, asked about her children, and they even knew uh, she even knew their nicknames. Yeah, that's all true. And uh, she made, she lived for another 13 years after that. She insisted throughout the entire time that people address her as Shiva. She was interviewed on uh, the BBC. She said, I have Shiva's memories. I don't have the memories of this other person. But she remained married to her husband, in fact, even had children with uh, Mr. Singh because... That was her legal status at that point in time. But it's a beautiful case that suggests that in addition to reincarnating, that is entering the body of, let's say, a newborn infant or even uh, an infant still in the womb, that reincarnation can take place uh, in, in an adult person. If, for example, that person dies and while the body is still warm enough, another spirit can reanimate it, and uh, so we have good evidence for that.
1: That's an amazing story. Well, I want to talk about mediums and seances and. These are uh, considered, maybe in the scientific community, uh, as the outlaws. (laughs) And what is your experience of mediums and seances?
2: These days, uh, there's a whole new wave of of mediums and they have a lot of popular attention. They have TV shows and and so on. Phrase Scientific Outlaws was one that William James, the founder of American psychology, who was a great psychical researcher as well, used because back in 1900, he was engaged in a debate on the pages of Science Magazine about a medium heat had discovered Mrs. Piper and she convinced him that she had paranormal abilities beyond any doubt. So he was defending her in the pages of science and the scientific community was so hostile to him. They were trying to dismiss him. And James is a brilliant man. He got very irritated by the flimsy arguments they were using to simply dismiss anybody who might dare defend a medium, he said that, uh, I think the phrase he uses, mediums are scientific outlaws, and any stick is good enough to beat a dog of that stripe with. You can find that right in the pages of Science Magazine. But the truth is that over the decades, there's been enormous body of research with mediums. Now, I can't, of course, attest to the validity of every single person who purports to be a medium. We know that there have been fraudulent mediums throughout history. Uh, There have also been cases of real mediums who would engage in fraud when they're in an unconscious state and they're given the opportunity. So it's a very complex field. But There's no doubt that that mediums have uh, real abilities at times.
1: I was wondering, going back to Piper, who was the medium that um, William James was defending, she worked with several people. I mean, it seems like there are certain people, I'm, I'm making a conclusion here that I don't know is correct, but it seems like there are certain people Who are just more open to that field of being able to communicate across, you know, life and death. And how are these people more receptive than maybe the rest of us? Why are mediums more receptive? Yeah, the ones that are authentic.
2: Well, I think it's a bell curve like any other human skill. Some people are better at mathematics and some people are better at music and some people have natural psychic and mediumistic talents. I I can say this, Justine, the most effective evidence in favor of mediumship comes from Uh, deceased psychical researchers like Myers himself determined to prove his existence after he died, where he would create messages that he'd give to different mediums on different continents in America, in India, and in England. And each message was partial. They only made sense when you put them all together these are known as the cross correspondences, and to my way of thinking constitutes some of the very best proof of survival after death.
1: Wow, wow. Um, Jeffrey, I'd love to ask you, what do you feel is the price that's paid for ignoring the evidence of parapsychological events?
2: It's a very deep price, in my opinion, Justine, because we're talking about the nature of human consciousness. When we talk about survival after death, that's exactly what we're talking about is consciousness separate from the brain. It's who we are. It's part of our identity. So to the extent that science deliberately ignores this, we are unfortunately and sadly and very deliberately ignoring a very important piece of self-awareness and and to my way of thinking if the human race is going to evolve to become what you might think of as a species capable of traveling through the stars we have to understand hyperspace that's that's how we, we travel great distances if we're going to understand hyperspace We have to understand consciousness, and that means understanding the afterlife. It's all of a piece.
1: Wouldn't dreams be a type of hyperspace where we're entering hyperspace?
2: Beautifully put, exactly so.
1: So, uh, yeah, every night I go into hyperspace. Wow, I love it, I love it, I love it. Yeah. So in the 50 years that you have been exploring this entire field in so many ways, what have you learned in this time?
2: Well, I need to be very humble about it because I, you know... People say I have an encyclopedic mind, and and I do. My first book, The Roots of Consciousness, was an encyclopedic book. But the truth is I know only the tiniest fraction of, of what's out there. Uh, It's there's so much for us to explore. I think one might say the human race is still in its infancy in terms of uh, our true potential. And that's what excites me, is that that we are moving maybe out of our infancy into our adolescence, that we can begin to actually understand. Uh, Here's what I think, Justine. We're at a point in history analogous to, let's say, the 15th century when explorers were reaching out and mapping the new world, new continents, and now we can do that again, but it'll be new continents of consciousness.
1: Wow, that's wonderful. Jeffrey, I want to say uh, with you and all of your work, all of your interviews, all of your uh documents like this paper that you wrote to beyond the brain your enthusiasm is infectious is what i would say and and so therefore you you really are giving us a shot in the arm so to speak to to continue to believe in in what our experience is and not to not to shy away from it, to, 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 to pay attention to the synchronicities or the messages receive or tell others and receive the information from others as they tell their stories. So I, I just want to thank you so much for continuing on this research and sharing it with all of us. Thank you so much, Jeffrey.
2: Well, thank you, Justine. It's been, of course, the joy of my life to be able to explore this area and to share it with other people.
1: I I thank you. I'm I'm here with and been speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. And he is the author of the essay "Beyond the Brain: The Survival of Human Consciousness After Permanent Bodily Death." And if you want to know more about him and the interviews he does, you can—they're ongoing. You can go to thenewthinkingaloud.com, or the new—that's his website—or just go to the YouTube "New Thinking allowed on the YouTube, and "Allowed" is a l-l-o-w-e-d allowed, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3753.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions.